she did not put there. Animals drowned in her eyeballs that she did not put there. Animals she could not warn against falling in because she was of them, not separable from them. Define sick, the atmosphere asked. So she tried. She made a whale on fire, somehow still, swimming and alive. See, she said, like that, kind of. But the atmosphere did not understand this. So the planet progressed in her argument. She talked about the skin that snakes shed, about satellites that circled her, like suitors forever, yet never said a word. She talked about the shyness of large things, how a blueberry dominates the tongue that it dies on. She talked and talked, and the atmosphere started nodding. You could call this a revolution, or just therapy. Meanwhile, the whale spent the rest of his life burning, etc., etc. He sang a few songs. When he finally died, his body, continuing to burn steadily, drifted down to the ocean floor. And although the planet had long since forgotten him, he was merely one of her many examples. He became a kind of god in the eyes of the fish that saw him as he fell. Or, not a god exactly but at least something inexplicable, something strange and worth briefly turning your face toward. Miko Harvey, the poem Grace Interrupted. The above-the-line end credits continue with colorful fractal chaos behind and around them. Executive Producers David Ellison, Dana Goldberg, Don Granger. Saul's transformation continues. Quote, Saul woke on his back beneath the lighthouse, covered in sand. Henry crumpled beside him. It was still night, the sky a deep, rich blue bleeding into black, but full of stars against that vast expanse. He must be dying, he knew, must be broken in a hundred places, but he didn't feel broken. Instead, all he felt was a kind of restlessness, growing a hundredfold now and nothing else behind it. No agony from the fall, from the searing pain of what must be several broken bones. None of that. Was he in shock? But still, there was the rising brightness and the night staring down with thousands of glistening eyes, the comforting husk and hush of the surf, and as he turned on his side to face the sea, the faint dark shadows of night herons, with their distinctive raised crests, stabbing at the tiny silver fish writhing in the wet sand. With a groan, anticipating a collapse that never came, Saul rose without stagger or a swoon, a dreadful strength coursing through him. Even his shoulder felt fine, uninjured or so badly injured and disoriented that he was nearing the end. Whatever was coming into his head was being translated into words, his distress expressed as language, and he clamped down on it again, because he knew somehow that to let it out was to give in, and that he might not have much time left. He looked up at the lantern room of the lighthouse, imagining again that fall. Something inside had saved him, protected him. By the time he'd hit the ground, he hadn't been himself. The plummet become a descent so gentle, so light, that it had been like a cocoon tenderly plummeting, kissing the sand, come to rest as if locking into a position preordained for him. When he looked over at Henry, Saul could see even in the dull darkness that the man was still alive, that distant stare as locked and fixed on him as the stars above. 
that stare coming to Saul from across the centuries, across vast, unconquerable distances, beatific and yet deadly, a scruffy assassin, a fallen angel ravaged by time. Saul didn't want that gaze upon him, walked a short distance away from Henry, down the beach, closer to the water. Charlie was somewhere out there in the sea, night fishing. He wanted Charlie close now, but also wanted him thrust far away, cast out, so that whatever had possessed him might not possess Charlie. He made his way to the ridge of rocks that Gloria liked to explore, to the tidal pools, and sat there, silent, recovering his sense of self. Out in the sea, he thought he could see the rippling backs of leviathans as they breached and then returned to the depths. There came the stench of oil and gasoline and chemicals, the sea coming almost up to his feet now. He could see the beach was strewn with plastic and garbage and tarred bits of metal, barrels and culverts clotted with seaweed and barnacles. The remains of ships rising, too. Detritus that had never touched this coast but was here now. Above, the stars seemed to be moving at a tremendous rate, through a moonless sky, and he could hear the thunderous screams of their passage, streaking faster and faster until the dark was dissolving into ribbons and streamers of light. Henry, like an awkward shadow, appeared at his side, but Saul wasn't frightened of Henry. Am I dead? he asked Henry. Henry said nothing. Then, after a moment, you're not really Henry anymore are you? No answer. Who are you? Henry looked over at Saul, looked away again. Charlie, in a boat, offshore, night fishing, far away from whatever this was, this sensation pushing out of him like a live thing, pushing harder and harder and harder. Will I ever see Charlie again? Henry turned away from Saul, began to walk down the beach, broken and stumbling. After a couple of steps, something further broke inside of him and he fell to the sand, crawling for a few feet before he lay still. And the hand of the sinner shall rejoice, for there is no sin in shadow or in light that the seeds of the dead cannot forgive. Something was about to crest like a wave. Something was about to come out of him. He felt weak and invincible all at once. Was this how it happened? Was this one of the ways God came for you? He did not want to leave the world, and yet he knew now that he was leaving it, or that it was leaving him. Saul managed to get into his pickup truck, could feel his sickness overflowing, knew that whatever was about to happen he would be unable to control was beyond anyone's ability to control. He did not want it to happen there, on the coast, next to his lighthouse. Didn't want it to happen at all, but knew the choice was not up to him. There were comets erupting in his head and a vision of a terrible door and what had come out of it. So he drove, down the rutted path, careening wildly at times, trying to escape himself even though that was impossible. Through the sleeping village, past dirt road after dirt road, Charlie out at sea, thankfully not here, head pounding, the shadows begetting shadows, and the words trying to erupt from his mouth now, urgent to come out of his mouth, a code he couldn't decipher, feelings of something had its attention upon him, unable to escape the sensation of interference and transmittal, a communication pressed in on the edges of his brain, until he couldn't drive anymore, then in the most remote part of the forgotten coast, the parts of the pine forest no one claimed or wanted or lived in, stopped, stumbled out, the shapes of the dark trees, the sound of the owls, innumerable rustlings, a fox pausing to stare at him, unafraid, the stars above still swirling and streaking. Stumbling in the dark, scraping up against palmettos and tough scrub, pushing past the uprising of his undergrowth, a foot into black water and out again, the sharp scent of fox piss, the suggestion of an animal or animals watching him, trying now to hold his balance, trying to hold on to his wits, but a universe was opening up in his head filled with images he didn't, couldn't understand. 
a flowering plant that could never die. A rain of white rabbits cut off in mid-leap. A woman reaching down to touch a starfish in a tidal pool. Green dust from a corpse blowing away in the wind. Henry standing atop the lighthouse, jerking and twitching, receiving a signal from very, very far away. A man stumbling through the forgotten coast in army fatigues, all of his comrades dead. And a light that found him from above, pinning him there, some vital transaction complete. The feel of wet, dead leaves, the smell of a bonfire burning, the sound of a dog, distant, barking, the taste of dirt, and overhead, the interlocking branches of the pines. There were strange ruined cities rising from his head, and with them a sliver that promised salvation, and God said it was good, and God said, don't fight it, except that all he wanted to do was fight it, holding on to Charlie, to Gloria, even to his father, his father preaching that inner glow, as of being taken up by something greater than himself, which language could not express. Finally, in that wilderness, Saul could go no farther. He was done, and he knew it, and he wept as he fell, as he felt the thing within anchor him to the ground, as alien as any sensation he'd ever felt, and yet as familiar as if it had happened a hundred times before. It was just a tiny thing, a splinter, and yet it was as large as entire world, and he was never going to understand it, even as it took him over. His last thoughts before the thoughts that were not his, that were never going to be his. Perhaps there is no shame in this. Perhaps I can bear this, fight this, to give in but not give up, and projected back out behind him toward the sea, Saul unable to say the name, just three simple words that seemed so inadequate, and yet they were all he had left to use. Sometime later, he woke up. That winter morning, the wind was cold against the collar of his coat as he trudged down the trail toward the lighthouse. There had been a storm the night before, and down into his left, the ocean lay gray and roiling against the dull blue of the sky, seen through the rustle and sway of the sea oats, driftwood and bottles and faded white buoys and a dead hammerhead shark had washed up in the aftermath, tangled among snarls of seaweed, but no real damage either here or in the village. At his feet lay bramble and the thick gray of thistles that would bloom purple in the spring and summer. To his right, the ponds were dark with the muttering complaints of grebes and buffleheads. Blackbirds plunged the thin branches of trees down, exploded upward in panic at his passage, settled back into garrulous communities. The brisk, fresh salt smell to the air had an edge of flame, a burning smell from some nearby house or still smoldering bonfire. End quote. Jeremy Williams writes on the Earthbound Report, 17th March 2018, quote, 
Annihilation is a deeply ambiguous film, with an ending that leaves more questions than answers. It's rich in allegory, the spreading distortions of the shimmer hint at cancer and decay, but its oddly beautiful forms suggest evolution and transformation. There are themes of paranoia, grief, and self-destruction. But what it spoke to me about and gave me a reason to write about here is climate change. The term climate change is a strangely neutral and bloodless one, popularized after all by the deliberately neutral UN. It doesn't really reflect the lived experience of it, which more often than not is to find things out of place. Cyclones occur in places with no history of them. Disease lines move, bringing malaria up to the mountains where it was previously unknown. Spring comes early, rains vanish, migration patterns change, bizarrely warm temperatures in the Arctic plunge Britain into a deep freeze. There's a reason why columnist Thomas Friedman likes to call it global weirding. The so-called philosopher prophet Timothy Morton, this is the uncanny, the word for familiar and strange at the same time. We are repulsed, he argues, by things that are like us but not like us, something that the film uses to horrific effect. Climate change is uncanny because it muddles what we know and because we see ourselves in it too. We know there are human causes somewhere in the background of the odd weather and the freak events. They are the mysterious work of our hands, as Amitav Ghosh puts it in his book, The Great Derangement, Climate Change, and the Unthinkable, returning to haunt us in unthinkable shapes and forms. End quote. Production designer, Mark Digby. Jeff Vandermeer tells Timothy Morton in the Los Angeles Review of Books, 24th December 2016, quote, There is also the issue about the environment around you that like I said, you don't recognize. For example, every time I come back to North Florida, there's a sudden jolt because I realize everything is decaying more than normal in places up north. This last time I came back, there was a vine that was actually curled through my car tires, and it had gotten up into the engine. It's like you forget that in writing fiction, you're just transcribing reality to some degree. I think the thing that I find fascinating too, at least here in North Florida, is that the distinction between inside and outside becomes corrupted, which is a really fascinating thing about Florida. We have this invasion of these little tiny pink geckos that coat the outside of the house now. They get inside the house. You don't know how. You get insects inside the house no matter what you do, no matter how careful you are. If you really think about it, there's this porous quality. Our bodies are porous first of all. We have tons of microbes on top of us and whatnot. Then our actual houses are porous in ways that we don't always want to recognize. I find that also speaks to the whole issue of complexity and how we view the world that I think feeds into hyperobjects, too. End quote. Editor, Barney Pilling, ACE. Drifting from hyperobjects to the Anthropocene, let us go to The Guardian, Alex Blasdell, 15th June, 2017. Quote, Part of what makes Morton popular are his attacks on settled ways of thinking. His most frequently cited book, Ecology Without Nature, says we need to scrap the whole concept of nature. He argues that a distinctive feature of our world is the presence of ginormous things he calls hyperobjects, such as global warming or the internet that we tend to think of as abstract ideas because we can't get our heads around them, but are nevertheless as real as hammers. He believes all beings are interdependent, and speculates that everything in the universe has a kind of consciousness, from algae and boulders to knives and forks. He asserts that human beings are cyborgs of a kind, since we are made up of all sorts of non-human components. He likes to point out that the very stuff that supposedly makes us, us, our DNA, contains a significant amount of genetic material from viruses, he says that we're already ruled by a primitive artificial intelligence, industrial capitalism. At the same time, he believes that there are some weird experimental chemicals in consumerism that will help humanity prevent a full-blown ecological crisis. Morton's theories might sound bizarre, 
but they are in tune with the most earth-shaking idea to emerge in the 21st century, that we are entering a new phase in the history of the planet, a phase that Morton and many others now call the Anthropocene. For the past 12,000 years, human beings lived in a geological epoch called the Holocene, known for its relatively stable, temperate climes. It was, you might say, the California of planetary history, but it is coming to an end. Recently, we have begun to alter the Earth so drastically that, according to many scientists, the new epoch is dawning. After the briefest of geological vacations, we seem to be entering a more volatile period. The term Anthropocene, from the ancient Greek word anthropos, meaning human, acknowledges that humans are the major cause of the Earth's current transformation. Extreme weathers, submerged cities, acute resource shortages, vanished species, lakes turned to deserts, nuclear fallout. If there is still human life on Earth tens of thousands of years from now, societies that we can't imagine will have to grapple with the changes we are wreaking today. Morton has noted that 75% of the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere at this very moment will still be there in half a millennium. That's 15 generations away. It will take another 750 generations, or 25,000 years, for most of those gases to be absorbed into the ocean. The Anthropocene is not only a period of man-made disruption, it is also a moment of blinking self-awareness, in which the human species is becoming conscious of itself as a planetary force. We're not only driving global warming and ecological destruction, we know that we are. One of Morton's most powerful insights is that we are condemned to live with this awareness at all times. It's there not only when politicians gather to discuss international environmental agreements, but when we do something as mundane as chat about the weather, pick up a plastic bag at the supermarket, or water the lawn. We live in a world with a moral calculus that didn't exist before. Now, doing just about anything is an environmental question. That wasn't true 60 years ago, or at least people weren't aware that it was true. Tragically, it is only by despoiling the planet that we have realized just how much a part of it we are. Morton believes that this constitutes a revolution in our understanding of our place in the universe on a par with those fomented by Copernicus, Darwin, and Freud. He is just one of thousands of geologists, climate scientists, historians, novelists, and journalists writing about this upheaval. But, perhaps better than anyone else, he captures in words the uncanny feeling of being present at the birth of this extreme age. There you are, turning the ignition of your car, he writes, and it creeps up on you. Every time you fire up your engine, you don't mean to harm the Earth, let alone cause the sixth mass extinction event in the four and a half billion year history of life on this planet. But harm to Earth is precisely what is happening. Part of what's so uncomfortable about this is that our individual acts may be statistically and morally insignificant, but when you multiply them millions and billions of times, as they are performed by an entire species, they are a collective act of ecological destruction. End quote. Natalie Portman, Jennifer Jason Lee, Gina Rodriguez, Tessa Thompson, Tuva Novotny, and Oscar Isaac. Drifting back, somewhat, to the film, Maddie Stone explains in her Gizmodo review, 27th February 2018, quote, The answers aren't really forthcoming, though, which in itself is an important statement about the fact that by the time ecosystems have started to unravel, it may be too late for scientific interventions. I, for one, can't help but draw parallels between the shimmer and the looming specter of the Anthropocene. The term scientists are increasingly using to describe the transformations of Earth's climate and biosphere wrought not by a faceless and unknown alien invader, but by 7 billion carbon-spewing, resource-gobbling humans. The Anthropocene shares the Shimmer's transformative ability and takes things one step further by changing the non-living environment, the planet's climate, even its bedrock, too. And in the real world, those changes aren't nearly confined to an isolated bubble of space. They're coming for everything, 
from acidifying oceans causing coral reefs and their associated food webs to unravel, to a warming atmosphere affecting species migrations, the timing of key life events, and what can live where. The Anthropocene, like the Shimmer, is expected to transform life on a genetic level and shape the course of evolution for thousands of years to come. Importantly, neither the Shimmer nor the Anthropocene means the end of life. Instead, these phenomena signal the end of the stable life support systems that have allowed human civilization to flourish for 10,000 years, which is arguably a bit more unsettling and sinister than a giant asteroid taking everything out in one go. In both our world and the fictional world of the Southern Reach, humans have recognized the clear and present danger, the loss of control, and are responding with science, denial of scientific realities, military force, isolation, and fear. If the film were to follow the arc to the books, this would ultimately end in acceptance. End quote. Except none of this is the point that the film makes as well as it probably should. Where Vandermeer demonstrates an overt concern for the environment, Garland is more concerned with the personal. As Abby Neufeld puts it in the New Twenties, a climate art and environmental literature magazine, 17th July, 2020, quote, When we first came up with the idea for a film review series on climate change, Alex Garland's Annihilation was recommended to us frequently. I was often told it would be a perfect fit for great distractions, that it was a modern, popular climate change film. I went into the experience thinking that this would be a cut-and-dry evaluation, but ended up somewhat straining myself attempting to land on the point I thought Garland was trying to make. While the entire narrative is soaked in ecological traditionalism, the decision to tell a story where the environment itself provides the horror marks the beginning and end of a clear-cut parallel to the hyper-object that is climate change. While Garland firmly plans the idea of climate catastrophe, implying that the relationship between human and nature has suffered a deep disconnect, he does not give clear examples or guide his audience when it comes to his climate messaging. That's the thing with Annihilation. The film isn't about climate change, per se. It's not really about any one thing in particular. The film exists largely in the realm of allegory and lets its audience decide where the point lies. End quote. Casting by Nina Gold, CSA, and Francine Maisler, CSA. Garland's allegory is not necessarily about the environment. Still, Natalie Wall argues on The Digital Fix, 21st December 2020, quote, Area X's thriving environment is a brutal reminder of what we are doing to Earth. The extraterrestrial force is healing and irrevocably changing nature, and this is part of its malevolence for those at the Southern Reach. The force does not have any care or reverence for humans. As the physicist points out, it refracts everything in its domain, altering the DNA of plants, animals, and people, changing all aspects of nature, be they animal, vegetable, or mineral. Its disregard for the human race is what makes it threatening, but also how it transforms so potently. It does not adhere to the hierarchy we have created in which the human and Anthropocene are at the top. End quote. One more for the road. Lewis Gordon writes in Little White Lies, 13th March, 2018, quote, If the Anthropocene is symptomatic of humanity's hubristic domination of nature, then annihilation seeks to restore some existential balance, limiting the distance between people and the plants, animals, and bacteria living in the same global habitat. Early on in the film, we see Lena teaching her students about tumors. All, All cells were ultimately born from one cell. cell, she says, before Garland cuts to a close-up of wriggling, splitting cells, a motif he uses throughout the film. By focusing the camera's gaze on such microscopic matter, he effectively breaches the gap between humanity and its conjunctive life forms. As the camera pulls back to encompass not only Lena and her colleagues, but also the roaming fauna and flora of Area X, the extent of their genetic entanglement is revealed. In one scene, 
the team discovers a handheld video camera from an earlier expedition. A minor nitpick. They don't find a camera. They simply find the memory card. On it, they find disturbing images of Lena's estranged husband, Kane, slicing a colleague open, revealing slithering tentacles where his intestines should be. Later, the screaming voice of the group's geologist, Cass, is heard from the inside of a disfigured bear. Her pain, a voice we instantly recognize, has become the howl of the Anthropocene, revealing its torturous potential. Annihilation's body horror has been retooled for our current age of ecological crisis, yet again demonstrating the genre's malleability. David Cronenberg's early films Shivers and Rabid were a response to public hysteria over sexually transmitted infections, while Ridley Scott's Alien depicted sexual violence amid a period of changing gender politics. Garland's film traces a line through these cinematic developments all the way back to the genre's roots via such classics as The Fly and The Thing, both of which explore the horrific possibilities of genetic engineering. A bigger nitpick here, The Thing has nothing to do with genetic engineering, nor is The Thing from the 50s. Thing from Another World is, and the remake, they both involve aliens, not genetic engineering. The iridescent plant life and Area X's polymorphous wildlife don't emanate from human interference like Annihilation's 1950s forebears. There is nothing anything living within the contaminated zone can do to halt its malignant effects. But in the plurality of responses they give, Garland digs into psychological responses to the Anthropocene and the impetus to limit the space between humans and non-humans. When Kane unveils the transformed insides of his companion's abdominal cavity, it reveals a horror and revulsion at the thought of sharing a space with non-humans. Moments of beauty persist alongside the film's grotesque discomfort. Flowers glisten with vivid color. Deers graze quietly in the undergrowth, their antlers made up of blossoming branches. At one point, the team discovers plants that have taken human form, mimicking our physiological dimensions with knotted limbs and winding foliage. Tessa Thompson's physicist, Josie finds this particular mutation within herself, her skin prickling with emerging flower buds. The terror of earlier encounters with such unlikely transformations has given way to acceptance, the name of the final book in Vandermeer's trilogy, as Josie gives herself over to a shared form. The film's captivating crescendo, a dance sequence between Lena and an indistinguishable alien being, captures the unrelenting, graceful fluidity of Area X's processes. Similarly, in the age of the Anthropocene, it is the moment when traditional barriers between humans and other forms of ecology break down. As Lena's dance partner slowly assumes the form of Lena herself, we are witnessing the merging of human and non-human. By the end, it is not clear which is which. End quote. But that is the thing, and I do not mean that the blocking and framing of the scene makes it obvious which Lena gets away. We can infer environmental messaging and see references to climate change in the film if we want to, and we probably should but I do not think that Alex Garland made much of an effort to include them. They slipped through his own interpretation of Vandermeer's work almost accidentally. Garland is clearly more concerned with the transformation, especially unconscious transformation, of self, the things we do to our lives to self-destruct, the things we do in our lives to self-medicate. Thorin's barely mentioned alcoholism, but more obviously, Lena's affair. The things we do to focus our pain, Radix cutting, which gets a more explicit, albeit still brief, explanation from Shepard or what we might do when we are dying. Ventress, more than any of the others, knows this is a suicide mission, but she goes anyway because faced with her demise, she wants answers, and the answer to the Shimmer might be the only one she can find. Garland's focus is the very thing that turns the biologist to Lena Karens, the psychologist to Dr. Ventress. In Vandermeer's trilogy, even when we know characters' actual names, as we often do in the second and third novel, the narrative and even other characters still refer to them primarily by their more anonymous descriptors. 
because in the face of the ecological transformation of Area X, which is not so easily burned away as the film suggests, is bigger than these individual people. Gone in the translation to film is a lot of that Anthropocene. As Gordon says, Lena's dance partner slowly assumes the form of Lena herself, but we are not witnessing the merging of human and non-human, or at that point anything about nature. We are being offered up a ship of Theseus interrogation of what makes Lena, Lena. When she awakens in that tent in minute 30, she may as well be, already, a shimmer-created copy of the Lena we saw before Area X. And we can infer that she is just that, that the members of this expedition, and maybe every expedition before, are being copied and copied, are tracking toward the lighthouse and toward the lighthouse, resumption after resumption. And as crazy as that is, it is not the point because the point is made with a single copy. Visually, we know that the Lena we have followed from minute 30 onward is the one who escapes the lighthouse. But it does not matter which Lena escapes. Every Lena wants to escape. Every Lena wants to burn away within the lighthouse. Her guilt and her urge for both punishment and redemption are part of who she's become outside the shimmer. And no matter which Lena emerges, no matter the light in her eyes and the final frames before the credits, Lena is Lena is Lena. And the transformation of her identity and herself is really a separate issue than any shimmer-induced reproduction. Or maybe shimmer copy after shimmer copy after shimmer copy allowed for just enough improvement, as it were, that finally this Lena we follow through most of the film has been altered, corrected, fixed. Just enough that she fights her alien reflection and earns her way back to her husband. Or maybe this suicide mission was enough to fuel that change without any copies. The point is, it does not matter in the end. And, unfortunately, I think the larger, ecological message gets lost in the mix. In fact, the alien nature of that doppelganger undermines the potential ecological message by making the source of the horror so overtly external. From the third Southern Reach novel, Acceptance, the biologist's last will and testament, continued, quote, Returned from my exploration, with the owl as my companion, I now slowly took the measure of my immediate surroundings, the lighthouse, the buildings around it, and the town beyond. The town, which must have been abandoned long before the creation of Area X, consisted of a main street and a few side streets that then faded into the impression of dirt roads, the tire ruts overgrown with weeds, all of it empty. I could be the ruler of this place by default, if I wanted to be. Main Street had become a kind of facade, having fallen to a disheveled army of vines and flowering trees and bushes and weeds and wildflowers. Squirrels and badgers, skunks and raccoons, had taken over the remains, ospreys nesting on the ruins of rooftops. In the upper story of a house or former business, pigeons and starlings perched on gaping windows, the glass broken and fallen inside. It all had the rich scent of the reclaimed, of sweet blossoms and fresh grass in the summer, with the pungent underlying odor of animals marking their territory. It had also a hint of the unexpected for me, a kind of lingering shock to see these rough, rude memorials to the lives of human beings in a place I had thought largely free of them. Here and there, I found more signs of expeditions that had reached the island and either gone back across the water or died here and been transformed here. An abandoned backpack with the usual map in it. A flashlight. A rifle scope. A water canteen. These were tantalizing remnants, indicators that I tried to read too much into, for reasons that revealed a weakness in me. It should have been enough to know others had come here first, and that others had sought answers, whether they had found them or not. But there were sedimentary layers to this information and some of the older materials, which I believe dated back to just before and right after the creation of Area X, interested me more. People had taken up residence here within that narrow spectrum, and those people went by the initials S and SB, 
although I never once found a fragment that told me what these initials stood for, nor could I recall, either back in the world or during our training for the expedition, ever hearing of such an organization. Not, of course, that the island had been given any thought or attention in that training. By then, any betrayal by the Southern Reach struck me as just more of the same. In lieu of any other evidence, I called them the Seeker and Surveillance Bandits. It suited what I knew about them from the scraps they'd left behind, and for a time, it occupied my days to try to reconstruct their identity and their purpose on the island. The leavings of the SNSB, their detritus, took the form of damaged equipment that I identified as meant to record radio waves, to monitor infrared and other frequencies, along with more esoteric machines that defeated my attempts to decode their purpose. Along with such broken flotsam, I uncovered weathered, often unreadable, papers and photographs, and even a few recordings that croaked out incomprehensible too slow words as I plugged them into a failing generator that gave me only about 30 seconds of power at a time before cutting out. All of this I found inside the abandoned buildings on Main Street, remains protected by fallen and supporting walls or in basements where certain corners had escaped flooding. Burn marks existed in places where controlled fires had been started indoors, but I couldn't tell if the SNSB had started these fires or if they had come later during some desperate phase before everything had been assimilated by Area X. Looking at all of that ash, I realized that any attempt to reconstruct a sequence of events would be forever incomplete because someone had wanted to hide something. I took what I found to the lighthouse and began to sort through it, such as it was, all under the watchful but unhelpful eye of the owl. Despite the oblique nature of what I had recovered, I began to piece together hints of purpose, suggestions of conspiracy. All of what I relate here is highly speculative, but, I think, supported by the fragile evidence available to me. The SNSB had begun their occupation of this island not with a mapping of the perimeter but with a thorough investigation of the ruined lighthouse, which meant they had come here with a specific purpose. That investigation had been twinned to establish a kind of link between the lighthouse on the island and the one on the mainland. There were references to something that might or might not have been transferred, suggesting that perhaps the lens in the lighthouse I knew so well had originally come from here. But in context, this might or might not seemed almost certain to exist separate from the lens itself, or could exist separate. Torn pages from a book on the history of famous lighthouses, the lineage of lens manufacture, and shipping helped me little. There was also a debate as to whether they sought an object or a recordable phenomenon, which seemed to return to the idea of linking the two lighthouses. If a phenomenon, then this linkage was important. If an object, then the linkage might not be important and either the island or the lighthouse on the mainland would no longer be of interest. Further, the nature of these fragments was contradictory as to their organization and sophistication. Some SNSB members seemed to lack even a rudimentary understanding of science and wasted my time with scrawlings about ghosts and hauntings and copied down passages from books about demonic possession. The listing of stages interested me only in as much as I could transfer it to the biological world of parasitic and symbiotic relationships. Others among them lay out under the stars at night and recorded their dreams as if they were transmissions from beyond, as a kind of fiction. It enlivened my reading, but was otherwise worthless. Along with the ephemeral superstition, I would also group the lesser scientific observations, which reflected the involvement of third- or fourth-rate minds. Here it was not so much the accuracy of the observations, but the banality of the conclusions. Into this category fell extrapolations about prebiotic materials and spooky action at a distance along with already debunked experiments from decades past. What stood out from what I tossed on the compost heap seemed to come from a different sort of intelligence entirely. This mind, or these minds, asked questions and did not seem interested in hasty answers, did not care if one question birthed six more and if, in the end, none of those six questions led to anything concrete. 
There was a patience that seemed imposed and not at all a part of the swirling quicksilver consciousness that surrounded it. If I understood the scraps correctly, my pathetic attempt at playing Oracle, this second type not only kept tabs on people living on the mainland, but on certain of its own fellow SNSB members. It did not have only experimentation on its collective mind. Does the residue of a presence leave an identifiable trace? Although I could not be sure, I felt I had identified such a presence regardless, one that had infiltrated the SNSB late. A shift in command and control towards something more sophisticated, staring out at me from the pages I had found. In among the detritus, these feeble guesses, the word found, handwritten, triumphant. Found what? But with so little data, even found, even the awareness of some more intelligent entity peering out from among the fragments led nowhere. Someone, somewhere, had additional information, but the elements, Area X, had so accelerated the decay of the documents that I could not glean much more even though this was enough. Enough to suggest that there had been a kind of tampering with this coast before the creation of Area X, and my own experience to tell me that the Southern Reach had deliberately excised knowledge of the island from our expedition maps and briefings. These two data points, although more to do with the absence than with positive confirmation, made me redouble my efforts looking for SNSB scraps amid the rubble. But I never found anything more than what I had uncovered on my first thorough investigation. End quote. Visual Effects Supervisor, Andrew Whitehurst. And time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside. It was a dream. We live inside a dream. Annihilation. Annihilation.